Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Bloomberg Audio Studios. Podcasts, radio, news. This is the Bloomberg Daybreak Asia podcast. I'm Doug Krisner. You can join Brian Curtis and myself for the stories making news and moving markets in the APAC region. You can subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcast and always on Bloomberg Radio, the Bloomberg Terminal and the Bloomberg Business app. In our studios is Jing Liu, Chief Economist for Greater China at HSBC. Jing Liu, thanks very much for coming into uh, our studios. So we saw this report on CCTV that holiday hotel sales surged more than 60% year on year. This is just really tracking uh, several days during the holiday period, the Spring Festival. Uh, but also said that prices of grain, edible oil, pork, meat, chicken, and eggs remain basically unchanged. So I don't know if that's good news or bad news. But when China comes back from holiday next week, are we going to be looking at it with an optimistic feeling or more pessimism? I think uh, the holiday spending definitely is on track to hit a record high. This is uh, optimistic, I would say. And this is a fully normalized uh, spring festival after 2019. So we see quite some pent-up demand. Uh, and this year, there's some emergence uh, of the new spending uh, trend, uh, going back uh, home for the holiday first and then going out for travel. So that's why everywhere we see people and, peop- and in China, uh, people even create a new phrase to, to describe the crowd. One of the things that we talk a lot about on this program as it relates to consumer sentiment in China is not only the performance of the property market, and I choose those words very carefully because I really think that it's been underperforming in a major, major way that's known. The other thing that's been happening is that the equity market has been struggling. We know that as well. And I'm wondering maybe that authorities will surprise markets before the resumption of trading on Monday. One of the writers on our M Live blog was hypothesizing about the possibility, let's say, of a, of a cut in the one-year MLF over the weekend. That would be an unexpected positive for stocks. Is that something that could happen? Well, actually, we don't see the MLF cut on this Sunday. We actually see most likely after Fed pivot in the second half of this year, uh, there will be 20 basis point L- MLF cut. That being said, uh, likely we're going to see the LPR cut uh, on 20th uh, of, uh, of February. So, uh, or, you know, at least earlier than MLF cut. Um, I, I think, you know, uh, basically we have observed uh, recently the policymakers have stepped up their support uh, for the economy and even for the equity market. So that is taken in an optimistic way by Chinese people. Now, if you've been in this business as long as uh, people like Doug and I have been, you, you know that things are not usually as bad as they seem in the media, and that's even we're media people, um, uh, and they're not usually as good as they are sometimes portrayed as well. Um, so we look at these these reports uh, with a bit of a grain of salt. I mentioned the one from CCTV. Citigroup also said that Macau casinos, for instance, had a pretty strong start to the holidays uh, with visitors up about 34% in the first three days. 
So when you when you look at some of these anecdotal pieces of information, does, does it give you hope that they can emerge from this? Or is it really just overshadowed to, to too much of a degree by the housing and the stock market crashes? I think, you know, uh, we definitely see the passenger trips uh, increase quite a bit, both domestically and, uh, you know, offshore. Uh, it's also important to look at the per capita spending. And uh, uh, there's seems to be quite promising to be comparable to the 2019 level. And uh, on top of that, we see on the housing side, there's a lot of, uh, you know, measures being rolled out trying to stabilize the housing market. If uh, the government, by using this uh, new dual track model to support the housing market, uh, then probably we'll see consumer confidence continue to recover. I'm wondering about what's been going on with deflation. You know, we talk so much about the inflation story in, in the other developed markets like the U.S. and to a lesser extent Australia, even in Europe. It's maybe a situation now where we have stalled just a bit. So maybe uh, something that's approaching you know, kind of stagflation. I mean, growth is still strong, so I don't want to even characterize it in that way. But I think what's unmistakable is what's happening in China is very much a deflation story. How severe is it in your view? China is definitely an outlier on this front. But when we look at the composition of uh, inflation, then you probably won't be as worried because um, the major drag came from the food prices and uh, to a lesser extent, commodity prices. And, uh, you know, this year, I think starting from the second half of this year, we'll see pork an important driver for inflation and deflation in China actually will uh, likely, um, you know, uh, uh, turn from deflation to uh, inflation. That could be much less of a drag. So I think, you know, key is still to see whether consumer confidence improves enough such that there's, uh, uh, you know, uh, the domestic uh, demand picking up. We have seen um, measures described as ineffective uh, by the marketplace, uh, measures that have been put in to try to stem the, uh, uh, the difficulties in the property market. If you and if HSBC had uh, a sort of wish list for things that could be done, what would they be for China to, to stem the decline? Right. I, I think, you know, we give a lot of thought on this. And our uh, our view is that uh, there need to be a more top-down coordinated measure. Now we see a lot of trials and the localized level. But at the same time, the central government um, uh, rolls out this dual track model, uh, which basically says we are going to segregate the social housing and the private housing market. And then the catch of the social housing uh, market is that not only it can actually help Help, uh, especially the lower income people, uh, to have more spending power if they are eligible to live in social housing. But also, the government will uh, use uh, social housing to absorb some of the oversupply on private housing. That's a way to help mm-hmm. rebalance the market. So, uh, if I could uh, uh, say something, uh, I would say, um, you know, maybe do a larger scale of social housing. Beyond the property market overall, do you think there's overregulation in China and that is really the, the key problem here, that the way to in- reinvigorate growth is just to not only relax some of the regulations, but to send a very powerful message that these changes aren't going to be dynamic or mercurial, that once they're set, the market can comfortably rely that they will remain in place for the foreseeable future? 
Yeah, that's a fair comment. We did say, uh, you know, uh, we still see the lingering effect of the uh, regulation, uh, regulatory tightening from 2021. And uh, uh, we need to see a more coordinated effort from the government and to assure the market the regulation is more transparent and predictable. On that front, uh, I think it's quite interesting to see that NDRC uh, actually came out, uh, announced that they are going to sponsor uh, legislation which will give the private-owned enterprises uh, equal rights as SOEs. So if that actually uh, materialize uh, this year or next year, that would be another level, um, you know, in a sense that uh, people are more assured uh, there's a legal protection with respect to the uh, equal market access and uh, many other things for the POEs. Yeah, some have even said that uh, in the state-owned enterprise sector that they could increase the dividends and try to get some of the money uh, back into the system. But I suppose since the state is the the main uh, owner of shares of those, uh, maybe it uh, would be like giving the the money from the left hand to the right hand. Anyway, Jing, thanks very much for joining us. Jing Liu, Chief Economist, Greater China at HSBC. The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Well, one of our featured stories today, Ford is saying that it sees low-cost Chinese electric vehicles as a major threat. Now, for some of the background on this, currently there's a 27.5% tariff on Chinese EVs to be sold in the United States. Thus, you're not seeing Chinese EVs circulate in the United States. But now many of the Chinese uh, EV makers like BYD are scouting spots in Mexico so that they could take advantage of the U.S. MCA trade agreement, which would give them access to the United States. So to discuss this now, we're joined by Danny Lee, Bloomberg's Asia Transport Reporter, with us live in our studios. How real and how big and how immediate is this threat? Well, if you're Ford, they clearly have a worry that, you know, quote, China being a colossal strategic threat, that they're coming. Whatever the barriers that there are in stopping the Chinese EV makers, the brands right now, from entering the US. And these comments kind of echo something that Elon Musk had touched upon um, earlier this year. He said that, quote, frankly, if I think there are not more trade barriers established, they will pretty much demolish most other car companies in the world. So even Elon Musk is concerned of the, the rise and the dominance of the Chinese automakers. And particularly when you look at how BYD, in theory, could undercut Ford right now with its own EV as cheap as $11,000 in China. But when you look at the US being around $60,000, US dollars, there's a lot of room for the Chinese automakers and EV makers to undercut the legacy US brands who have dominated the auto space for such a long time. And they're just not used to seeing the competition, and particularly out of China, who are leading the way in terms of innovation uh, and development of EVs. Well, the US auto industry has had to deal with uh, what happened in the 1970s with uh, Japanese automakers to a lesser extent, what 
what's come out of parts of Germany. But one of the things I was struck by, Danny, and I'm sure you read the piece that our Bloomberg team put together, the chief operating officer at Ford EV's unit, Maureen Jaya, was saying that essentially Chinese EV makers are ahead of the in the technology space. So their technology is more advanced. Do you know what he's mm. talking about here? Is it is it something beyond just the battery technology? It's a combination of the battery technology and the technology that the way in which EVs are powered when it comes to the features, whether it be um, you know, autonomous driving, uh, to features in which consumers, drivers can be better connected to their car with their, for example, their phones. So there's a much more holistic ecosystem. It sounds a horrible phrase here, but it just means drivers are better connected with a whole range of features. And, and it just means that there is less, there's less friction when it comes to using your car as just a car. They can use it as, it feels like just much more than that. Well, as we heard uh, from that chief operating officer at Ford, um, they're, they're well aware of the problem now, and they're on the case. And they do have some time, because it takes a while to build a plant and to start churning out cars. How much time do they have? Well, frankly, if there were no trade barriers today, China would be in the U.S. market, and particularly these emerging Chinese brands, and even for the big brands like BYD, as you said, who overtook Tesla last year as the biggest EV seller. So... And, Regardless. Well, that's why I mentioned the 27.5% mm. tariff, because that kind of prices them out yeah. uh, to a certain degree. Uh, so, But they can get around that with the USMCA, but they have to build the plant. How long will it take, and can the U.S. manufacturers respond in that time? Well, the Chinese brands, it would be at least a couple of years away, if not at least three years away, uh, you know, depending on how quickly they can pour the resources in. And we knew that... Uh, from BYD speaking to Bloomberg, in fact, uh, last year, late last year, that they were looking at Mexico. So this is not necessarily a new point, but the fact that they have been looking and looking for the facilities and, and the ways to where to construct, they are already thinking about the bigger picture. And clearly Mexico, for a lot of Chinese brands and suppliers, is a key uh, launching pad for them to get to the U.S., it's a perfect segue into uh, Elon Musk inviting some of these Chinese auto part makers uh, into the Mexican market as a way of supplying what Tesla is hoping to do uh, when it creates this massive uh, production facility in Mexico, right? Do you want to weigh in on that? I mean, is this going to be uh, uh, something that the U.S. government is going to really kind of um, push back against to the extent that it can with Mr. Elon Musk? Yeah, this is a fascinating one. But for Elon Musk, clearly, you know, as Tesla has to grow, it has to find sites not just in the US but outside of the US where it can you know, continue to add production, add capacity. Um, now, Mexico is a is a clear answer here, and you know Mexico has been long known for auto producing and particularly for the North American brands. So, um, I think the US has to be careful at how it um, looks at Mexico. But for now, you know the Chinese. Uh, supply chain has been a huge component of Elon mm. Musk being able to uh, develop. So yeah. um, it, it's clearly an interesting one that Washington will still sit up. And, and we're seeing to. a parallel story develop uh, in Europe right now for the Chinese automakers. That's another story that we watch very closely. Thanks to Danny. Danny Lee, Bloomberg News. 
The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. We move to this story, Indonesia's Defense Minister Prabowo Subianto declaring victory himself in the presidential vote, citing independent pollsters. And we bring in Haslinda Amin, Bloomberg Chief Southeast Asia correspondent and anchor for Bloomberg Markets Asia for a closer look at this. So before we get to the significance of this and the implications of it has, let's talk a little bit about what has to happen for this to become fact and not just Prabowo uh, declaring victory. Well, that's right. I mean, the official results actually will come in in about a few weeks. What we've been referring to is the quick count done by independent pollsters. It is unofficial, but you know, this quick count have been accurate uh, for the past election. So a, a lot. A lot is being said right now. It shows a decisive victory for Prabowo and his running mate, Gibran, who is, by the way, the incumbent president, Jokowi's son. They secured almost 60 percent of the votes, which, by the way, is higher than what most polls predicted and better than Jokowi's own performance at the last two elections. And now it shows successful his media strategy in particular his tiktok strategy has been in remaking his image from a general who allegedly was involved in the killings in east timor in papua new guinea as well as the abduction of student protesters in the late 1990s now i was a rookie reporter then i remember those days uh, he was blacklisted by the u.s for two decades allowed to visit only recently in fact four years ago now Obviously, it comes down to that strategy, uh, and that's one of the hearts and minds uh, of the younger voters, because more than 50 percent of the 200 million voters are under 40 years old. It shows how, you know, uh, how he's won the hearts and minds, because through his media strategy, he's come across as a cuddly grandfather. His meme is of a chubby grandfather. So, you know, when you speak to those young people around here, they say, you know what? Okay. People change. (laughs) And what he stands for is uh, a good economy and great well, jobs. And that's what he's promised the young people. Yeah, well, one, one thing I'm curious about, though, has has a little back and forth. One thing I'm curious about is why hasn't Joko Widodo publicly declared, uh, declared support, given that his son is the running mate? Well, the thing is this, right? As a president, constitutionally, he's meant to stay neutral about Obviously, uh, you know, he's been seen with Prabowo. He's been, uh, he's been seen supporting Prabowo uh, and fielding his son as the vice president. That shows a lot of support for Prabowo. Uh, and hence, that has become quite an issue with the, with the people who see this as Jokowi himself trying to build a political dynasty. Yes, he's done two times in office, but no, he's, he's not leaving because his son is going to be next in power. So a lot of, you know, unease um, in the country. Haas, I know you have great familiarity with Indonesia, you, a lot of experience. I'm wondering if you can help me understand how the economy is performing. You talked about the, the support among the younger generation for Subianto. Give me a sense of what's happening economically that may be uh, helping to feed some of that support among the younger generation. You know, 
numbers don't lie. If you take a look at the last eight years and how you know, the JCI, the Jakarta Composite Index, has done, it's surged 45%. The rupiah has been pretty stable despite the pandemic, and that shows the legacy that Joko Widodo is leaving behind, an average growth of 5%. You know what? Nothing to scream about and far, far away from that 7% goal, but it is still 5%, a growth rate that many countries, even in this part of the world, are not showing. So the country is doing pretty well. What investors want to see is stability, and they're getting that with uh, the results of this election. What they want to see is policy continuity, and Parboa has promised that. So you can expect policies like downstreaming, like infrastructure spending, infrastructure building, uh, the move of the capital from Jakarta to Nusantara will continue, and that might just be enough for the JCI to search even more and for the yeah. currency to strengthen from here. Let's go back to the comment you made about Prabowo uh, being banned from the U.S. for a couple of decades. Uh, that's because of alleged human rights abuses, and, and he's the former son-in-law of the late dictator Suharto. Uh, is any of that cloud uh, still following him, uh, or is that all cleared now? When it comes to relations with the U.S., I think hours that you speak to is constructive relationship. because Indonesia plays a pivotal role in balancing the influence between the U.S. and China uh, in this part of the world, the Indo-Pacific, as Trump himself um, uh, talked about. And I think that is crucial in, in, in putting things in perspective. Also remember that Indonesia is one of the biggest exporters of the likes of coal, of nickel. And as the world moves into the EV space, as climate becomes essential, um, an essential conversation, uh, and as China tries to uh, shape and influence uh, a, a lot of the regions, um, I think both sides, Indonesia in particular, knows what's at stake and is willing to play both sides. So uh, I think whether Biden comes to power or whether Trump comes back to power, uh, I think there'll be no difference in how relationships pan out from here. It will be a constructive relationship. It's a big country, a lot of provinces that have to report. Ha's last question, how long do you think it will be before the the results of this election are official? It's going to be a couple of weeks. Uh, you know, you talk about how large it is. Let me just put that in perspective very quickly. It is an archipelago, 17,000 islands, 700 languages, three different time zones, all in an area as big as the U.S. So, you know, it was amazing that the whole election, 200 million voters, took all of six hours to cast their votes, and it'll take a few weeks for the official results to come through. Haas, thanks so much. I know it's a busy day for you. Uh, I appreciate you making time for us here on the radio side. Haas Linda Amin, Bloomberg's uh, Chief South Asia Correspondent, also anchor of uh, Bloomberg Markets Asia from Jakarta, Indonesia, here on Daybreak Asia. This is the Bloomberg Daybreak Asia podcast, bringing you the stories making news and moving markets in the Asia Pacific. Visit the Bloomberg podcast channel on YouTube to get more episodes of this and other shows from Bloomberg. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen. And always on Bloomberg Radio, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business app. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? 
With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more.